point. Uh, good evening, everyone. I, uh, I, I was away for, for three weeks, and um, what's sad about that is that many of you didn't notice that, um, and that hurts just a little bit. But in my absence, I left Gior in charge, and I mean, it's been three weeks, and we've just gone full-blown charismatic with strobe lights. I'm not sure if you guys saw that, um, but I do not approve. I mean, this, these things need to be run by me. Come on, man. Um, but it, it is exciting nonetheless. All right. So, so, so guys, apparently I've been told as the, the visiting, uh, um, uh, what do you call it, the, the, the visiting speaker for this evening that we are talking about suffering and uh, questions that won't go away. And we're going we're gonna to probably tackle the ultimate question that won't go away. And that is the question of suffering. I remember I, I just discovered apologetics and I was like a man with a hammer and everything just looked like a nail and I was super excited about rational arguments and just rationalizing everybody into the kingdom. And I was asked to, to speak at this camp and there was a bunch of teenagers and I gave the logical argument for the problem of evil. And at least I addressed the logical problem of evil. In other words, um, looking at why it is consistent for a loving God to exist and an omnipotent and all-powerful God to exist at the same time. And I, I tried to impress them with you know, fancy words and, and whatnot. And uh, after about 40 minutes of giving my all, one of the girls in the front put up her hand. She said, um, so why do you think God would allow evil? And I thought, geez, I was pretty sure I just did that for the last 40 minutes. And I, um, I made a comment, and many of my problems start with that sentence. I made a comment, um, uh, which I said, I, I would go through it again, but I'm just worried that somebody is going to say, if God is the God of love, why do we have to listen to this guy twice? Um, so, um, but, but we can go through it again. And then she just started crying. And uh, turns out her, both her parents died in a plane crash two weeks before before that camp. And there wasn't one logical approach. There wasn't one, you know, heartfelt approach. There wasn't a book on suffering. There wasn't one thing that could contain the grief of, of this girl. And I think what we need to know is that this question, the suffering question, is a question that we will discuss again and again and again. Even though we might make sense of an aspect of it. I have been completely convinced that it's solved, I don't have a problem with it. And then something happens, and it just comes at me at a different angle, and I have to deal with this thing from, uh, from the start. Maybe, uh, maybe it's an image or a story that you heard coming out of the, the Ukraine. Maybe it's a, a story coming closer to home from, from the KZN floods. This morning, I spoke to a, um, a pastor who came to visit us this morning. And he had to go and counsel a boy who uh, went to school. And when he came back, his mother and two siblings were gone in the floods. The house taken. This is a super middle class uh, family. And to try and make sense of that. And the question of why God would allow something like that to happen just hits you right in the face. Maybe it's a loved one of yours. Uh, during the COVID pandemic, we were confronted with this question from the start. But it's not just us as Christians who need to wrestle with this question. Everybody needs to wrestle with this question. As a matter of fact, many people would say that philosophy and religion is actually just a response to suffering, trying to make sense of suffering. Cicero, the, the Roman academic, said, man, uh, the main task of philosophy is to teach us how to face death. The Buddha, or who would later become the Buddha, the whole, the whole Buddhist religion started by, by him venturing out of the confines of his palace, and he saw suffering outside of the walls, and immediately devised this philosophy to try and make sense of, of suffering. So this is something that we all need to deal with, irrespective of your worldview. And I want to I give a snapshot of what some of the worldviews would say about suffering, and it's definitely not exhaustive, and it's definitely not going to represent them well enough, but I, I don't mean any disrespect by it. But from what I can gather, in Buddhism, suffering is an illusion. 
And the answer to suffering, the way to address that, is by a sense of detachment. Because that suffering that you experience is an illusion. And as the, the more that you detach yourself from the suffering, the closer you can get to, uh, to nirvana. All right? Then in Islam, their explanation for suffering in the world is very fatalistic. In other words, they just say, it's the will of Allah. And that's it. If Allah wants to kill everybody, then he can do that. If he wants to make... It, it, it is what it is. Um, so it's very fatalistic. Then Eastern Hinduism, um, I, I'm just trying to distinguish it from Buddhism, um, you have the whole idea of karma. Bad things happen because you did something bad. And even if you say, well, that's unfair, I didn't do anything bad. I never did this anything bad in the previous life. You did something bad. And the, the, the idea is to get out of this cycle of, of reincarnation. In the secular, in the secular worldview, uh, suffering is random, and that's exactly what you can expect in a world where there's no purpose, there's no divine uh, reason behind it. We are a cosmic accident vomited up here by, by all of these particles, and, and we suffer, and it's meaningless. You won't find any rhyme or reason in it. And maybe um, in, African, uh, in African animism or ancestralism, you know, suffering is, 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 again, also very karma-like, but it seems to me also uh, a fight between all of these spiritual forces, a very lively spiritual realm that can uh, call curses on you or not. And um, it's, it's a very dynamic set of things happening there. The Christian, I think, would say that the way in which we try to address suffering, at the very least, is to say it's not simplistic. Whatever it is, it's not easy to pin it down. And to a certain extent, all of what we just mentioned above has a version of the truth. But to the Buddhist, I think we would say suffering is certainly very real. It is not an illusion. To the Muslim, we would say it's overwhelming and it's, it's just not satisfying to just say it's the will of God and, 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 and that's it. Um, to, the, to the karma uh, um, proponents, we will say that sometimes suffering is just unfair. It's not anything that any, anybody did. It was, it's just plain unfair. And so it goes on and on. But I want to unpack some of these, these aspects. But before we get there, I first want to deal very uh, superficially with the logical argument, which is how can a loving God exist and evil at the same time? And it's been creatively formulated by, by many atheists through the ages. But the one way is, is the following. If God is a God of love, then he would want to get rid of all evil. Does that make sense? I think that is reasonable. If he's omnipotent, all-powerful, then he would be able to get rid of all evil. Are you guys tracking? All right. So if he's all love, he would want to do it. If he's all-powerful, he would be able to do it. So why then do you have evil? All right. So that is, that is the argument. Now, we're not going to exhaust that. But let me just say one or two things. The one is, it has a bit of a boomerang effect. The boomerang effect is this. If you say that there's objective pain and suffering and evil in this world, then you are assuming something. You are assuming that there is an objective realm. What I mean by objective is it is not subjective. There you go. Uh, it is outside of, it is outside of us. It is not the case of Nina. Um, Nina likes strawberry ice cream. Ivan is more of a chocolate guy. And, and they say, what is the objective truth? Which one is better? We can all say that is subjective. But as soon as, uh, as, as, as Ivan starts to, to kill Nina, I mean, I, I know you guys are sitting together and that's a bit strange for, for the moment, but um, as soon as, as we venture there, then Ivan cannot say, look, I like, I like chocolate ice cream. I like the occasional kill. At potato, potato, that's, it's, it's subjective. Then we will say, no, 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 no. Now we are moving in an objective realm where these things are not, uh, they're not conditional. They're not culture specific. They're not individual specific. They are objective. But the only way in which you can say that something is objective is if there is an objective lawgiver. All right? So um, if you're not following this or if, if, you, if you're not following all the you know, steps, it, it really is okay because it, it, it is quite technical and it deserves a talk on its own. But we can talk about it afterwards if, if it is necessary. 
But the most famous victim, probably, of this boomerang effect was an Oxford literary professor called T.S. Lewis, who said that he was in the trenches of the First World War and he was so angry at, at God's non-existence for allowing all of the, the suffering and the evil, and then he realized, but why do I call it evil? Why do I call this wrong? Why do I call that right? If we are just the accident of a random process, then some things are evolutionary and advantageous and other things are not evolutionary advantageous, but they are not wrong or right in any object, objective or absolute sense of the word. All right? And then he realized that my argument against God is actually, to a certain extent, an argument for God. If you guys didn't understand that, it really is okay. But I think it is important to just slip that in as the first problem, I think, with the objection that we are looking at. The next thing that, that is typically used in what is typically called a theodicy, when we try to make sense of, um, of, of God and suffering, is an argument that was first put forth by Augustine, St. Augustine, who was an African scholar, so woohoo for the continent. And... And, and he devised what is called the free will defense. The free will defense. And it goes something like this. He says, God is ultimately a lover. He wants to be, he, he, he wants to receive, he wants to give love and he wants to receive love from his creation. The one thing that he will not do is he won't coerce us into loving him. All right? So he will give us the option. But when there is an option to love someone, there is also the option to not love someone, to hate someone, to choose against that person. So God created, and at least this is according to the biblical story, God created mankind with free will, and they decided that instead of choosing God, they chose against him, and that is how evil came into this world. Now, whether that is satisfying on all levels, I don't think it is satisfying on all levels. I think there's a lot of questions that still needs to be answered. Answered, But the one thing that I think it does say is that it is consistent, according to the biblical story, that suffering can exist and, uh, and, and, and the loving, omnipotent God because of this free will aspect. I mean, you would say, why did he give us free will if we were going to mess it up? Because he is a lover. If I program my phone to say, Yuan, good morning, you're very handsome and attractive, I love you. It is, not, it is not love. Some of us say, I love my iPhone, but it, it, it is definitely not what I am talking about here, and it's definitely not what God is interested in. It is uh, when, when, when I got married to, to my wife, uh, people, when we said yes to each other, then a couple of people said, ah, all right, in the, in the room. And some of them said, ah, that was a bad decision. But most of them said, ah, because they, they recognized that, oh, they chose each other. Nobody saw a gun against Lorraine's head. Do you love him? Yes. Ah, oh, that's so romantic. No, because that is coerced. It's not a free choice. But to, to risk love, to create humans with free will, also means that you've got the possibility of people choosing against it, of abusing free will. And that is, at least according to the biblical story, how evil comes into, into the world. Now, I, I told you that I think this is, it is legitimate on a couple of levels, and you guys can, can disagree with it, but it definitely doesn't answer all the questions, all right? So I don't even want to, want to pretend that it, that it does. But what I want to do now is just move away from this you know, more philosophical aspect of the argument and just look at the multi-dimensional aspect of suffering that we detect in, in the Bible. Are you guys still with me? All right. So suffering is central to the biblical story. It doesn't hide suffering. It doesn't give you this little angelic view of everything and everything is okay. It is constantly telling us about the, the, the suffering that is present in this world. And it does it in quite vivid terms. So for example, in Revelations 13 verse 1, the, the image that encapsulates or personifies the chaos and suffering of this world is, is the sea and everything coming out of the sea. So for example, Revelations 13:1 says, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its head. And 
in Daniel 7, again, you see these beasts coming out of the sea. And it is symbolic of everything that is dangerous and bad um, and uh, uh, destructive in this world. There's also a almost mythical figure that is routinely mentioned in Scripture called Leviathan, all right? And Leviathan is a sea monster, all right? That's why you guys must read your Bible, because it's super interesting. There's a sea monster in the Bible that routinely appears, but it's almost got a mythical quality that has to do with just, it is uncontrolled, and it is destructive, and it is super dangerous. And the ancient people were, were very scared of, of the sea. The Israelites were also very scared of the sea, um, because they called the Sea of Galilee a sea which is really a glorified dam. Um, but for them, yeah, 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 that is, that, is, that is pretty scary. And I mean, I've been there a couple of times, and it, it's true that you get hectic storms there, but it says something about their, um, I don't know, isolated, almost landlocked view of, of, of things. Um, but, but this is front and, and center of the biblical story is suffering, evil. There is this fight. There is something wrong. Everything is not okay in this world and it's represented by the sea and its monsters. But now, as we look at how these monsters, so to speak, affect us, it happens on a, a, a multi-dimensional, uh, in a multi-dimensional range of things. So for example, in, in Proverbs 26, Proverbs is, is very to the point and, and quite comical in, in just how it, it gets on with things. But in, in Proverbs 26, verse uh, 27, we read this about, about suffering. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, <laughs> and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. All right? So if you're going to roll a rock up a hill and you're going to stand in the same place, it's going to roll over you. If you are going to dig a pit around you, you're going to be in a pit. I know it's profound, but, but here's the thing. The Bible seems to think that there is something called karma. In other words, there is something of suffering that is self-inflicted. And you don't just, you get it all over Proverbs. If you make bad decisions, this is going to happen. You sow what you reap. Are you guys with me? And, uh, and we see this all around us. And many people would say, um, oh, man, you want, why, why would God allow this? Why, um, why, has he, um, why doesn't he give me a job? Why am I unemployed? Um, God says that whatever you ask him, he will give it to you. I said, because you, you're lazy. You're unteachable. You're selfish. That's why you don't have a job. Don't blame God um, for, for, for that. This is, this is, this is the problem. Um, and a lot of the suffering in our lives, if we are honest and we take stock, is self-inflicted. But that is just one dimension of, 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 of suffering. Another dimension is it can be soul-shaping. Soul-shaping. What I mean by that is Psalm 34, verse 18 says, God is close to the brokenhearted. Now, I, I don't want to project onto you, but I'm pretty sure if I ask you in w which times in your life, what were the times in your life that you, you experienced the most spiritual intimacy? What were the times in your life where in your desperation you were just pleading with God and uh, immersed in scripture? Then often it has to do or surrounds suffering. I, I had a very good childhood but my dad died when I was 11, and he was about 42. And it's kind of freaky to think that in seven years, that's where I am, by the way. But uh, he, he died young, and I was 11 years old, and I liked, um, I, 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 I liked to chase after balls. And I guess that didn't change much. Um, and I did things that an 11-year-old would do. But as soon as my dad died, something happened in me, which is... I wasn't satisfied with just chasing balls or just chasing girls or, or just doing the next thing. I was asking just slightly more penetrating questions. And I'm, I'm a very superficial person, but, but that event just made me a little bit less 
superficial, made me ask questions that, that, that I wouldn't have asked if my dad was still alive. And it made me ask questions about faith and life after death and the meaning of life. And to some of you, this might be a disappointment, but it set me on the course to what I'm doing today, all right, which is uh, trying to, to articulate why, uh, what the spiritual life looks like. But a lot of it stems from a, a tragic incident. And for many of us, I, I'm sure this, this, is, uh, this, is the this is the same. Sometimes suffering is there to avoid a future disaster. Now, uh, remember we're looking at different ways. I said sometimes it's self-inflicted. Sometimes it really shapes us. You can see the spiritual stretch marks, stretch marks on your body um, as you work through the suffering. Sometimes suffering is to uh, prevent a future disaster. There's this guy in the Bible, and um, his, his brothers wants to kill him, and in their infinite mercy decide, no, let's sell him as a slave. So they sell him as a slave, uh, which isn't nice. And he, he, he sort of climbs the ranks slowly, and eventually he lands in the Egyptian jail, which is as bad today as it was back then. And, and through this horrible, horrible suffering of this guy, he lands at the right hand of, of Pharaoh. He's got visions. He's got a master plan to, to feed all the, the known world at that point. And millions of people, or at least thousands of people, are fed. But for him to have gotten there, had, he had to go through incredible suffering. And right at the end of the book of Genesis, this guy called Joseph, by the way, um, he, he responds to the evil that his brothers uh, did. And he says, do not fear, for, I, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So at that point, Joseph could reflect back and see, wow, this had to happen so that I could be in this position and that a lot of people can be alive. But I can assure you when he was in the pit, I can assure you when he was in the Egyptian jail, he didn't have that kind of perspective. So the Bible says sometimes suffering helps us to, get, um, to, to save something that, that, that happens uh, in the future. Something else that we need to understand is that when it comes to suffering, we have a limited perspective. We have a limited perspective. My boy at the moment is very much into his toys and into his cars, but unfortunately he's also into not just the toy cars, but the real cars as well. So whenever we go out, it is this constant struggle between me and him, um, because most of the times I do not want him to be hit by a car. And you, you try and, um, uh, you, you hold him, and when he's looking in your face at that point, it just seems like he is, he hates you. Why are you doing this to me? Why are you inhibiting my freedom of exploration? I, th I thought you want me to learn stuff. Um, I mean, he's, he's not articulating it that well, but, but that's what I get from his, his facial expression. Um, but, but that's an act of, of love. There's a, a far better story uh, that, that I think hits at this, of a guy called James Dobson. He's a, he's a famous um, American... A ministry guy, and uh, apparently his son complained just about you know a lot of pressure on the ear. But he's he's like a young kid, I don't know, five six. Um, he says there's something in his ear, and he t he takes the kid to his his doctor friend, who's just looking at him quickly there in a uh, in a room, and he realizes that there's an abscess or something in the ear, and it's going to pop anytime soon, and and he's going to have permanent damage. He's, he will lose his hearing if they do not drain this thing immediately. So he tries to get uh, a room in, in, in a theater and to get an anesthetist to, to settle this whole thing. He can't, he can't find one. So he looks at his friend, James, and says, I'm going to drain this thing right now without any anesthetics. That's what's going to happen, and it's going to be excruciating for this kid. What I want you to do is lie on top of him and hold his head down and make sure he doesn't move. So he lies on top of his child, he holds his head down, and he, obviously he wants to look away because this is too horrible to, um, to, to be part of. So he, he tries to just get away from what's going on here. And unfortunately, it's one of those 
those doctor rooms where there's a mirror on the side and he's looking straight into the face of his boy and he shouts, Daddy, Daddy, I thought you loved me. And in that moment, he realized that that was obviously a, a massive act of love. It hurt the father more than the child. But, but, but the child didn't have that perspective. He, he experienced this as an onslaught. He experienced this as unmitigated, unfair suffering when it was an act of love. The difference between a five-year-old and a 45-year-old is not as big as between us and God. And sometimes we need to know that the perspective that we have is very limited when it comes to our, our suffering. There's a disease called congenital insensitivity to pain and anhedrosis. Not sure if any of you have ever heard of it. SIPA for short. And apparently it's a neurological disease where you cannot feel pain. The, 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 the sensors between uh, the rest of your body and your brain does not report it as painful. And as a kid growing up with this, has to be watched all the time because they will play with fire and they won't realize that, that this thing is dangerous. They will, um, where pain is something that helps them grow up, when pain is something that actually helps you to, to live longer, um, this thing doesn't allow it. It doesn't have that barrier between you and this world. And if you are a parent of a child with this disease, then your only dream, your only hope is that your child would experience pain. So this is the limited perspective element that I think is important to know, that, that pain is uh, sometimes necessary for us to grow, and we do not, not, we do not always see it that way. And the last thing I want to say, when, as we are looking at some of the perspectives, as we are trying to make sense of it, is, um, is that it's also, sometimes pain is the smelling salt of, of this world. And sometimes we, we need to experience, not pain ourselves, but we need to have a loved one who experiences pain. And through that, we, we respond in kind. Um, Gert actually sent this to me. This is the, the great theologian and philosopher that you guys all know as Leon Schuster. And um, apparently his mother died this past week and he, he wrote this short reflection. Unfortunately, it is in Afrikaans, but I will explain it in a second. He says this, Ek is tans in bloem, waar my ou honderdjarige moeder in erge leiding op haar laaste bene staan. Dit is hard verskerend. Weg is haar mooi glimlach. Maar van ochend toe jubel ek, toe my skoonsis vir haar Psalm 23 voorlees, en dit die enigste keer is wat sy haar oor oopmaak, en ek een opflikkering kies sien. Ek weet nie wat in haar gryse koppie aangaan nie, maar dit is verseker, sy het iets ervaar. Sy sien iets wat ek nie kan sien nie. Dit bied vir my soveel troos, en dit is een wonderwerk. Haar kraal oogie swem in die trane, en dan weet ek, die licht wat dier die trane skyn, is die licht van boe en daar is selfs een aanduiding van een glimlach. Hierdie is vir my een persoonlijke reis terug na die waarheid wat ek eendag gehad het, maar intussen verloor het. Ek is doelbewus dier haar leiding, wat verskrikkelijk is om te aanskou, teruggeplik na Godse boezem. Which is to say, that this is, uh, um, I don't even actually want you to, 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 to Google this guy, because it's not going to make you take this, this quote seriously, but, um, actually a very talented comedian and filmmaker and, and, and whatnot. And, uh, and he, he, he walked away from the faith and then seeing the suffering of his mother as she approaches death just brought him back to the faith. So sometimes your suffering is not even about you. It's about somebody else's response to you. And we've seen this plenty of times in uh, adversity my, some of our friends died in, in car crashes and they did it when they were inebriated and there were a lot of guys there partying with and it could have been any of them and then after that they decide to turn their lives around and they walk away from alcohol, they walk away from, from that old life and they start afresh and, and it, it was the death of this one person, the tragic death, that enabled them to take this step in 
a meaningful direction. So sometimes suffering works like that. Friends, I must also just say that of all the cultures in the world, we are probably the worst at dealing with suffering. We've hid it away. If you just go back a couple of decades, then in most households, half of the kids would have been buried before their 18th birthday. And they didn't die somewhere in a hospital, they died at home. So you would have seen your siblings die as you, as you grow up. If you go to uh, many of these old cemeteries, you would see the, 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 uh, the, the grave, is it the gravestone, the tombs of, uh, of, of these young kids, four, five, six, seven. And you know what, when we read their journals, when we read their writing, it is almost as if they were happier than us. It's almost as if they found more meaning in suffering and that they could connect with God seamlessly because of their suffering. But we've hidden it away. We put suffering in a hospital. We, we also don't see the process in which food comes to us. So, <coughs> excuse me, we, uh, I mean, m maybe one, of two, one or two of you guys are uh, hippie vegans, but um, those, of, those of us who, who eat meat, um, we, we don't see the, the process that that meat has to go through before it, it comes to me because usually it looks lovely and it, it, that little chicken wants to be eaten and it's vacuum packed and I can just pick it up at, at, at Spar. But it was quite a violent process to get it there. And I'm, I'm just trying to illustrate that we've hit all suffering all forms of, of things that we are uncomfortable with, we've hid it in the corner, and the, and, and, and the result of that is that we really struggle to deal with, um, with suffering when it strikes us, all right? But now, I also wanna, wanna say thank you, um, your good and faithful servant. Um, so, um, there's a category of suffering, however, <clears throat> that doesn't make sense. It's not karma, it doesn't, we can't see how it calls people into action, we can't see how it is soul-forming, uh, we cannot see how it is bad decisions and it's self-inflicted. There's a category of suffering that, that just doesn't make sense. And the book in the Bible that wrestles with this category of suffering more than any other book is the book of Job. So. So Job is such an interesting book, and it's, it's quite difficult to wrestle through um, in its entirety. But just to, to give you some uh, synopsis, um, God is um, surveying the world, and he's bragging about his servant Job, who's more righteous than anyone else, and, um, and there's none like him. And then Satan says, whoa, 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 whoa. Does, does Job serve God for nothing? You've put a hedge around him. The only reason why he's serving you is because he's got everything. He's got money, he's got the wife, he's got the family, he's got the house, he's got the businesses. Um, that's the only reason why he's, uh, he's experiencing discomfort. And he, and he says this question, um, or he, he asks this question rather. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God? for no reason. Does God, I mean, does Job fear, fear God for, for nothing? And then God allows Satan to inflict all sorts of suffering on Job. And, uh, and it's horrible. He becomes the paradigmatic sufferer. He loses his family. He loses his money. He loses his wealth, his businesses, um, his, his children, um, his, his, his everything around him he loses. Even, um, even his health is affected by this. And through, the pro, through this whole book, he's trying to wrestle with why did God allow this? Why is this happening in my life? Um, and then he's got these friends who pitch up and they say, well, maybe you did something wrong. Have you really examined your life? Maybe you did something wrong and that's why God is punishing you because we know that God will not just punish you for no reason. So there must be a reason and you might be the problem. And it's this back and forth. And, uh, and Job gets quite sassy along the way, like screaming. So no, I mean... Cursed the day that I was born. Um, there are a couple of, of verses that I, I quick, just quickly want us to, to look at. He, he says, this is in, in Job 6, verses 2 to 4. Oh, that my suffering were weighed, 
and all my calamity laid in the balances, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my wounds have, my, my, my words have been rash, for the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. I mean, that is, that is just not the typical passage that you expect to come out of the Bible. The arrows of the Almighty are in me, and I am being poisoned by these arrows of, of the Almighty. So he is just going through, these, through this relentless, relentless uh, suffering. And then, after chapters and chapters of back and forth between Job and his friends, etc., etc., eventually we come to a point where God answers Job. And it's the longest speech of God in the Bible. And it's very unsatisfying from, from our perspective. God says, where were you when I made this? Where were you when I made this? He takes him on a tour of the universe. Where were you when I did this and this and this and this and this? And then he goes into, uh, into a direction that is somewhat strange. In, near the end, he, 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 he ends his speech by describing that sea monster, Leviathan, that we spoke about earlier. So from Job 41 onwards, from, from uh, verse 1, can you, and he's talking to Job, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? So this is this massive sea monster. Can you go fishing for this massive dinosaur a Leviathan thing? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? And it goes on. And God describes Leviathan. And he asks these, these rhetorical questions to Job over and over again. And you know what? By the end of it, Job responds and he says, God, I, I said things and I didn't know the, the full picture. Um, and now that I've seen you, I am, I am okay. But, but here's the thing. Throughout all of his suffering, Job persevered. He persevered. He stuck to it, all right? And when God is, gives an explanation, um, or, or rather, when God speaks, he doesn't give him an explanation at all. It's his longest speech in the Bible. He never gives him an explanation. He never tells him why he suffered. He just tells him about Leviathan and about this hippopotamus. And it, it's a bizarre, bizarre speech. And then Job says, I'm fine, I'm okay. And it's pretty much the end of Job. <laughs> so what's going on? You see, the question in the beginning was, does, does Job serve God for nothing? And the answer at the end seems to be yes. Because everything was taken from Job. Even an explanation was taken from Job. And Job's response is, I serve you. I am, I'm not going to walk away from, from this faith of mine. I'm not going to walk away from God. I will, I will continue and persevere in you. And that is the answer to, uh, to, to, the, to the accusers, to the accuser, to Satan's question. And friends, we must be very careful that when we, uh, when we, when we worship God and when we do this, this life of faith, that we don't treat God like a mercenary. Like, like somebody that, look, I'm going to sing a few songs and I'm going to do a few nice things and I expect this from you because then he's like a celestial vending machine. That's not, that's not how you should relate to God. How you should relate to God is to love him for nothing at all. I've used this example before and I'm going to use it again. You've got young, young lovers like um, Ricky and, 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 and Jan Chris. They are youngish lovers. And, uh, and he just recently came back from uh, North Korea, actually South Korea, and, um, and, and, and they had a candlelit dinner, and, and this happens with so many candlelit dinners across the world, where, where Ricky and Jan Chris are looking each other in the eyes and saying, and then Ricky asks the question, why do you love me? Why do you love me? And then Jan Chris, and it's a stupid question, by the way, Ricky Nett, and then Jan Chris gives an even stupider answer. He says, because you run fast and um, you, uh, 
you're just so good at getting over life's hurdles, um, and you are attractive, and you're funny, and um, you're smart, and I enjoy your company, whatever. You, you, you say those things, right? Does it sound familiar? But if Ricky Nate just thought about those answers that Jan Chris gave him, she would realize that they are terrifying answers. Why? Because what if she's not an athlete anymore? What if she's not pretty anymore? What if she goes into a depression and she cannot crack jokes anymore? Will he love me then? Do you see that every argument that Jan Chris gave to Ricky why he loves her ends up actually being an argument against love. So God is interested in free lovers, people who love him, not for what they get out of him, but just for who he is. And that is true love. That is when we can recognize true love, to love someone not for what we can get out of this arrangement, whether it is a friendship, whether it is a romantic relationship, but you love that person for nothing at all. Then you have ascended to divine love. Are you guys with me? And by taking Job through this terrible, terrible suffering, it seems like he was turned into a free lover. All right, that's the one point. But now I want to get back to the sea monsters because that's where the interesting stuff is. He describes Leviathan. And Leviathan is chaotic and he's uncontrollable and he is destructive. But the way in which God describes Leviathan in this final part of his long speech is a way in which he says, even though this thing is destructive, I want to tell you that ultimately I am also in control of this. Ultimately, this thing is on a leash. I am in control of this. And it is almost as if this personification of chaos and terror um, that, that Job experienced the full force of that he can say, I am okay. If you, when, when I realize that you are in charge even of Leviathan, then, 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 I can, then I can take a breath. Friends, it is, it is no coincidence that when Jesus stilled the sea, on the Sea of Galilee, when he calmed the storm, the disciples were amazed. And it wasn't just because he... Uh, he, it, it was a cool miracle. It was because it was co connecting with hyperlinks back into scripture and forward on multiple levels. This is the one who fights the sea monster. This is the one who calms the sea, the, 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 the chaos, the leviathan, everything that is represented, representative of disorder um, in this world. God is, a, this, this person is the one who can calm that. This is God himself. And you know what? What hope we have as believers in Christ is a vision that was given to John, the disciple of Jesus. And near the end of his revelation, Revelations, um, uh, Revelation 21, he, see, he, he sees the following. He says, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. In the future, there will be no sea. Some of you guys are very disappointed because you like umschlanger, but you can relax because this, this has to do with the, the, the Jewish imagination, the Jewish metaphor. In the future, Leviathan, in the future, the sea, chaos, will be destroyed, will be put in its place. This, this God-man will ultimately deal with this, all right? But I want to do one more application, and I promise I will, I, will, I will end. I told you that Job is the paradigmatic sufferer. And if you, if you look at Job, one can look at it, and it's, it's an example of how we should persevere through suffering. It's an example of how we should be a free lover, and I think it's good and right, and we need to relate to Job um, in, in that way. But there's something else that happens also in Job. You see... If you zoom out a little bit, you see that this is God's most righteous servant. This is the one, if you survey the whole land, this is, this is the good guy. This is Job. And this guy goes through 
horrible, horrible suffering more than any other person. And it is unjustified suffering in almost every sense of the word. And then what happens in the end? He is redeemed. He is blessed. The blessing is restored. And there's something else that happens as well that I find quite interesting. Right near the end, God says this to Job. This is uh, Job uh, 42 from verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Which, by the way, is a bizarre statement, because Job was, was, was huffing and puffing and swearing, and the, 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 the arrows of the Almighty is within me, and it's poisoning me. I mean, it, it wasn't censored, right? It was, it was PG-16 at least, um, you know, how he spoke about God. But then he says, but he spoke well of me, or he spoke right of me. And uh, most commentators say the difference between him and his friends is he spoke to God, they spoke about God. All right. Now, therefore, he's talking to, uh, to Eliphaz. Therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourself. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to, <coughs> not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. If we zoom out of the Job story, this is what we see. A righteous person, unlike anybody else, who goes through unprecedented suffering, unlike anybody else, who was redeemed and his blessing is restored at the end, unlike anybody else. And through his offering and through his prayer, these friends are restored. They are forgiven. And by the way, if you want to know why he's got friends in different countries, all right, why is that guy from there and that guy from there and that guy from there? Was Job well-traveled? No, it, it, it is representative of the known world at that stage. It is representative of, um, it's, 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 it's a bit like if, if this thing was written in uh, sort of first century Israel, it would have been, um, so, <coughs> excuse me, they, they invited Gary the Galilean, um, Susie the Sumerian, and Jonathan the Judean, all right? So they're coming from all the, the, various, the various parts of the world. And all those people must be, must be prayed for and through the prayer and the offering of Job, they are brought back into community. Friends, does that sound familiar? Do we know of someone else who was the righteous one, who went through unparalleled suffering, and through his offering, all the people of the known world are brought in. Through his offering, everybody is forgiven. It's Jesus. And here's the strange thing. The person who is slaying the, the dragon, who is, who is conquering the, the, the beast, the, the serpent, Leviathan, whatever you want to call who's calming the seas, is also the Job. He's also the one who goes through, these, through this unprecedented suffering. And somehow, through the victory that Jesus achieves on the cross, the whole world is brought in. Now, friends... I cannot make sense of all of suffering. I cannot make sense even of most of it. But when I see that our God, the same one, uh, one of the songs that we sang is the lion and the lamb. It seems like such a paradox. A lamb is slain, uh, a lion does the slaying. The one is the slayer and the other one is the slayee. But they are both in the person of Jesus. He is the one that calms the storm, that kills the beast, but he's also the one that suffers and the one that is killed. But somehow, through his victory, the whole of the world is redeemed, and even suffering itself is redeemed. You can say a lot of things about God, um, but, but given the, the image of the cross and given the picture that we have of Jesus, the one thing that you cannot say is that he's aloof to our suffering. I want to end off with a quote from John Stott, who says this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one that Friedrich Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. 
in the real world of pain, how could one worship a god who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing agonies of this world. But each time after a while I have had to turn away, and in my imagination I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering, the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, even as we, we struggle with this question at multiple levels, even as we come to this question from so many perspectives, some of us are maybe in the midst of suffering, some of us are experiencing it secondhand, some of us has just gone through something, some of us will. I pray, Lord, that even though we won't be able to make complete sense of it, that we would be able to engrave the image of you, the true Job, the one that is greater than Job, who suffered on our behalf, who scored a mighty victory uh, over, over death itself, that we would engrave that image into our hearts and that we would be able to encounter suffering with perseverance, Lord. That we will be able to stand against it. The only way, Lord, in which we can do it is by your Holy Spirit and by your divine mercy. Ah, Lord, there's so much suffering in this world. And one of the ways in which we can maybe share our story and our testimony is by suffering well. It's by suffering with you next to us. And it is our prayer, Lord, that, that we would be good sufferers. And, and when we go through pain, because it will happen, that people would be able to look at it and they would be able to glorify you because of it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the cross. Thank you that whatever, whatever suffering we experience, the one thing that it cannot be is meaningless. And for that we thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.